we kind of hold the need for global action and individual action together without thinking about all the layers in between. So I am going to recycle. I am not going to use XYZ product. I am not going to give money to X, Y, and Z corporation. And then I also want us to be in the Paris Climate Accords and those things. And there's so much in between that also needs our attention. And that in between is where I think there's an opportunity to really embrace people who, for whatever reason, are culturally not going to be excited about that individual layer and the international layer. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. Today, we're going to travel west. We're going to talk about the California recall. We're going to talk about the historic drought affecting not just the West, but parts of the northern United States. And to close out the show, we're going to talk about what's on our mind outside of politics. Before we get started, we have the most amazing community here, and we talk about it a lot. But it's hard to fully appreciate it without all the beautiful details that our team gets to soak up every day. And so we're going to try to start spotlighting our amazing community when we can. And the thing I wanted to share with you today is we have the most incredible listener. Her name is Marjorie. She moved to Denmark several years ago, and she always sends us the most insightful, enlightening emails. And some of you might recognize her name because she often uh, shows up in our weekly newsletters where we highlight listener emails weekly. The best part is she signs every one of her emails, Fair Wins, which I love so much. It makes me feel lighter and happier every time I read it. I think it's such a beautiful little insight to Marjorie. So thank you, Marjorie, for being a part of this community for so many years. And Fair Wins. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. 
Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. As many of you may have heard, or honestly forgotten and not heard about it all, There is a recall going on of the governor of California, Gavin Newsom. Mail-in voting has already begun. The official voting day is Tuesday, September 14th. The voters of California will see a ballot with two questions. Should Governor Newsom be recalled? They can vote yes or no. And the second question is, if Newsom is recalled, who should be his replacement? Uh, The voters of California are currently presented with, wait for it, 46 candidates <laughs> to replace Governor Newsom, Republicans, Democrats, and everything in between. There was lots of coverage of the recall race over the weekend because Larry Elder, who's one of the Republican candidates, is currently first with about 23 percent in the poll lane. And so people, particularly people in Gavin Newsom's camp, are a little panicked about that. We wanted to spend some time on the idea of the recall generally. Beth, you texted me over the weekend and said, I don't think I agree with recalls. And my response was, oh, yeah, no, either impeach or sit the hell down. Like, no, this is such a bananas process to me. That's pretty much where I am. The cost of California's upcoming recall election is going to exceed $200 million. That makes no sense to me. And is that the cost to the state or that's how much people are spending on it? Oh, that's the cost to the state. Because there's so many people in California having an election is an expensive proposition. And to your point, that doesn't even countenance what political parties and individual candidates and political action committees and federal parties are going to spend on this election. And none of that makes sense to me. So I texted our friends Savitha and Sabrina, whose voices you heard during the infrastructure series because they are two of my favorite Californians. And I said, I would just love to get your input on this recall election, beginning with, why is it happening? And there's not really an answer. Mm -hmm. People cite the French laundry incident, where Governor Newsom had dinner with lobbyists in the midst of asking people to stay at home. But this effort was underway long before then. And I think that what is happening in lots of places, we saw this in Kentucky with an effort to impeach Governor Bashir as well, is that people have decided every tactic is on the table for everything now. And mm. so recalls of governors to me seem to be such a subversion of our 
democratic process. Now, you could say, well, it's a democratic exercise. The voters get excited. They put together a petition. Enough people sign it. And we vote again. What's undemocratic about that? Well, what's undemocratic about that to me is that it's hard enough to get people to show up for elections, even when the president of the United States is on the ballot. To get people to show up off cycle in an election that has two questions that are asked in a confusing way. California's Mm -hmm. ballot is a good example. The first question on the ballot is, should we recall the governor? And then the second is, who should be the governor? And the instructions say you can vote on both of those questions. So even if you say, no, we should not recall the governor, you can still vote for someone to be the governor in question two. And it's possible to win question two out of all of these people running, 46 candidates with just a majority. So that means a very small number of people could support one of these candidates and they could become the governor. I just think the process is confusing. I think it is inflammatory. If you don't think he's doing a good job, like you said, Sarah, impeach or be quiet until the next election and beat him at the next election. Oh, I promise you the second Governor Newsom was elected, there were people talking, planning a recall. There's like basically a cottage industry in California now of consultants and special interest and, let me be clear, Republican Party players who want nothing but to do recalls and waste the Democratic Party's resources. Because here's the thing. Everything's on the table, especially when you can't win and they can't win in a general election. That's not the makeup of California. And so this is what they do. I mean, Californians can trigger a recall election by collecting signatures that's equivalent to basically 12 percent of the votes cast in the previous election. What exactly is Democratic about that? So since they've started this in 1913, there have been 55 attempted recalls of governors in California, although only two have qualified for the ballot. But, you know, 1913, this is where a lot of laws in California came from. And it sounds like such a good deal, right? We want more participation. We want more democracy. But it's like the sunshine laws. There's a lot of things we did that sounded like a great idea that really just empower a small minority of people. I love this word, Francis Fukuyama, who's a Stanford political scientist. She calls it a vetocracy. Like they just can veto. They just, that we have empowered this tiny group of loud people to veto things. I mean, the Public Policy Institute of California found in May that 54% of likely voters approved of Newsom's performance and 57% opposed recalling him. But this loud 12% is all that's required, can undo a governor who is popular, popular with a overwhelming majority of voters in California. And so in this in this ballot situation, it's this crazy asymmetry where he needs an overwhelming majority or at least a majority on the recall question, but his replacement doesn't need a majority, just like you said. Like, they can get a small percentage of votes from the small percentage of people who are paying attention because it's like there's like about 15 percent of people who would say they would follow the recall closely. Well, it's those impassioned, loud minority that's going to basically act as a veto on the majority of people who voted for Gavin Newsom and want him to stay in office. And as much as I would love to say, well, it's good for the people who are paying the most attention to have the most sway. I do not believe that. And I do not believe it is a realistic ask to the citizens of a state to care about a gubernatorial election more than once every four years. Mm -hmm. That's too much of an ask. I do not believe the citizens of a state are served by the turnover of that office more than four years because you don't just recall the governor. 
you end up in that process recalling tons of political appointees to various positions. The ripple effects of changing out the executive are enormous and varied, and there's no way any single citizen fully appreciates the consequences of that action. And I am not saying this because I am some kind of fan of Governor Newsom. I have no feeling about him whatsoever. I felt the same way when there was this massive effort underway to recall Governor Scott Walker. I just think a recall is the wrong way to do this. If you are unhappy, vote them out next time. If you are unhappy, express your unhappiness. Advocate for change. Educate people on why you're unhappy. Recruit people to run against them in the next cycle. But this idea that we stop midway, absent the kind of gross misconduct that impeachment warrants, we need to just keep things in place until the next election. And particularly when no one can just say, here's what Gavin Newsom did that merits this, it it makes no sense to me. Yeah, I think it's the reality that it's not necessarily even that these people care more. It's just they're the constant presence of either organized interests like lobbying groups and you see this with the proposition system in California too, right? It's not necessarily this affected minority that really needs protection or majority. I mean, that's where a lot of these laws came from, right? The early 1900s, you had railroads that had basically captured the process. And we passed a lot of laws, and particularly in California, they passed a lot of laws to try to protect people in the process. But they, they're they not working. <laughs> they're just not working. This process has now been captured by moneyed interest. And I think we just need to acknowledge this. And it's not just true in California. There's lots of places where laws we thought would have one impact on the citizenry are not having that impact because, honestly, the, the average person doesn't want to pay attention to politics all the time. They just want their government to do a good job. And so what happens when you empower people with processes like that? It's not average citizens. It's organized interest. It's partisans. Because that's what you see. And look, you know, I can make I can understand that motivation because as a Democrat, I get that in California, the partisan politics of the Republican Party say we can't win because of the demographics of the state. And so this feels like fundamentally unfair, like elections aren't working for us. Now, I would argue to the Republican Party, if you feel like you can't win, maybe make a better policy argument. But, you know, in Wisconsin with Scott Walker, it felt like the process had been captured in a different way, right? That you had state legislators who, if you wanted to depend on them for an impeachment process, were using the the levers of power in really unfair ways as far as gerrymandering. We're seeing that in lots of places. Like this is this is hard and complicated stuff. I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying this like participation is going to fix it all like this is not working. It's broken. It doesn't fix everything. I read an interview with Fukuyama, the political scientist, and she was saying the argument we've made on the on the about political primaries. She says, there's no question in my mind that the move toward popular primaries abetted the rise of extremism, particularly on the right. I think we were better off with professional politicians in smoke-filled rooms nominating candidates. But try to make that argument today and you'll get your head handed to you. I mean, I've made that argument. You and I have talked about that argument. Like, it's not working and it makes it's easy just because it's the easy argument to say we need more democracy that we have to acknowledge the unintended consequences like that we've empowered this loud minority to capture the process in just a different kind of way. 
And we've talked a lot about being for systemic changes to work through that. Mm -hmm. I think in any system, someone is going to try to game it. So as you said, Sarah, if you're a Republican in California, why not take your shot at a recall? Because maybe you could win that where you aren't going to be able to win statewide and other conditions. And then you know that you've got another gubernatorial election coming up next year. This person would serve one year. And so you serve, though, as the incumbent going into that next election. And so that changes the tables. And you serve knowing that going into the next election, you've depleted some money from the other party. They had to spend Mm -hmm. some money to stay to, to avoid this recall. All of that said, here's a question that I have for you. I think that a lot of folks in California, and it sounds like the Democratic Party in California, have looked at this and said, it is not serious. It is a joke for a long time. And now they're looking at some of these numbers and getting panicked about it. I am struggling, and I think one of the major struggles for many of us as citizens right now is to know how much oxygen to give to things that seem like a joke. We talked about this a little bit when we talked last week about bananas, bills that get proposed in states. They get proposed all the time. Someone always emails us about them. We are often saying that's not going to make it out of committee. Let's move on. When you get a recall effort like this, where 46 people are running, no one can articulate the, the rationale It is easy to say, well, this is just a clown car, like moving on. And also, we've all been here for the last five years or so watching what happens when serious people look at something and say, well, that's not serious, so I won't take it seriously. And then suddenly it is quite serious. In Mm -hmm. fact, it occupies the Oval Office. And so I'm struggling with articulating a principle for myself about when something becomes serious to me. Erin Moon and her weekly newsletter included this tweet that I keep thinking about. And the tweet was, outrage is a poor substitute for work. And I think that with so much of politics and with so much of some of these process stories, but also the bigger trends and issues that, as you said, that we do need to pay attention to, even if they feel like a clown car, even if they don't feel like they're serious. And I think my principle is not to just fall into a place where outrage feels like I'm paying attention, like outrage feels like I'm doing something. To know that if it's if it's important enough for me to work for, to work towards or work against, or that that's a good indicator. But if I'm tempted to just be outraged and post about it and rant about it, then it's either not my work to do or maybe I'm just feeding the monster, right? Because the the vitocracy thrives on our outrage. The vitoc, you know, it would be a lot harder to run a party whose central operating motivation is to own the libs if the libs stopped reacting to every single thing, right? Like I just there's a part of me that says with this the current process we have, the important principle is to not feed the monster and to do the work to change the process. And I think that that's the two sort of operating objectives that I try to keep in mind. Like, is there something for me to do to change this? I'm not a voter in California. There's very little I can do about the propositions and the recall and the way all of this works. And so I don't want to just 
feed the outrage of the vitocracy by like getting up in arms all over social media about the California recall. I think, you know, talk, learning as much as you can about it, talking to your friends in California is one thing, but it is it's really hard to do when the, some of what's happening is happening at a state level, which still affects us nationally. If this person gets in, if a Republican gets in, Dianne Feinstein's 88 years old. This person could repl- could feasibly appoint her replacement. But again, I don't live in California. <laughs> I don't vote in California. And so there is a limit of what I can do about their vitocracy, except for to maybe that's the answer, right, is to say, if there's not a lot of work you can do, at least you can bring awareness about the process problems and the reforms that need to be enacted, as opposed to just outrage at the present situation. I think that's a good answer. And it's just helpful to me to know that sitting in Kentucky, my job isn't to decide how I would complete this ballot in California. I need not have an Mm -hmm. opinion on that. I do want to be clear about what the question is. And to me, if I were staring at this recall ballot or any recall ballot, I would think to myself, not how much do I like the current office holder? I would think, is the turmoil created by a change in office holder worth it? Is that justified Mm -hmm. under the present circumstances? And for me, that is an awfully high bar, and it's a bar that's so high that the correct vehicle really ought to be impeachment, not recall. And if I'm a Democrat, particularly if I'm a Democrat with political power inside the state of California, I would start thinking about how to make my case about this vitocracy to the voters, because whoever wins this recall, whoever's the governor after this recall vote, Democrats still hold the state legislature in California. And I know that it's a hard case to make. We want to take power away from the people. But that's only if you let that be the argument. Seems to me this recall presents a really good opportunity to present to people the reality. Much of this legislation in California is not about the majority and is not about democracy at all. And Democrats in California need to start having the political will and the political bravery to make that case. It would be very surprising to me, too, if you polled the state and found anything close to a majority of voters feeling comfortable spending this much money on this topic when California's needs are nearly limitless. Or which how many voters want to roll in with that like 50 page proposition book to review? I bet not many. I bet not many are like, oh, yes, I love rolling through 85 propositions to do research on every election day. I think they might be surprised at the political will to reform the system inside the state of California. Well, we will follow the recall and be back here probably to talk about the results on September 14th. We're not done with the West. Up next, we're going to turn to the historic drought affecting that part of the country. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, 
Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. So the West is currently experiencing a historic drought, and we were talking about California, but honestly, it's not just the usual suspects of California and the Southwest. It's bad way beyond those regions of the country. Now, it is bad in California. The reservoirs in the state hold about half as much water as usual for this time of year, but it's also the Pacific Northwest, the Mountain West, even parts of the plains that are experiencing drought conditions. Now, we usually think of droughts as just not enough rain, and that's true. That's a huge component of it. But in the West, they depend on snowpack that melts 
to fill a lot of their reservoir and keep them with water throughout the year. But the problem, because of climate change, is that the snowpacks are melting way too fast, and so that water can't be available throughout drier parts of the year. Heat is causing water in reservoirs to evaporate more quickly. And then there are, of course, bigger macro factors like population growth and the resulting demand on farming and what that industry requires as far as water. So there's a lot going on with this drought when we look out west to that part of the country. I read this morning that almost half of the contiguous 48 states of the U.S. are experiencing a years-long drought now. And significant rainfall, even in the form of something anticipated like the monsoon that you typically see near the southwest or La Nina, which they predict to form near the Pacific Northwest, significant rainfall like that won't fix this. It's it's mm-hmm. going to be months, if not longer, to restore something that feels more normal to us. And we may just have to change what our normal feels like. And that that is a big adjustment when you're talking about something like Lake Mead being in a state that is an emergency state, really. Almost the entire state of Utah now is experiencing this drought. It is really changing the shape of what how people can expect to live in that part of the country. And that's that's hard. So my father lives in California. We had a conversation about this over the weekend. And he, as he often does, brought up the Delta smelt. Now, so if you are trying to have conversations about this with family members or people in your life that usually disagree with you, you might hear this too. Uh, Trump has used this as an excuse for the drought in the West several times, especially during wildfire season. And just so you know, the Delta smelt is a tiny little fish, three to four inches. It's a blue fish that lives only in the San Francisco Bay and the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta. And they're really harbingers for the the health of the Delta and the health of the water. And they've been failing. Their population has been declining. They've been on the cusp of extinction because for decades, huge volumes of that freshwater are diverted to aqueducts and canals around those delta areas. Now, if you Google this, there is still this total bullshit article from the Wall Street Journal in 2009 that comes up in the first results still out there living its life that says that this pumping the water is why there's a drought. It's just not true. It's just not true. (laughs) Like the drought, as we just said, extends way beyond those two deltas. It's not that they're pumping fresh water in to protect the delta smelt. It's that they prevent some of that water and direct it to farms and surrounding areas. All that to say, that is a diversion. That's just a straw man. It's not unrelated But the huge factors that are driving the drought go so far beyond this tiny fish. And as that often happens when we talk about this stuff, there's always big groups at play. There are individual actions and individual habits, although I think with most of this stuff, that is the the, usually the smallest factor. You have government and you have government policy. And then, of course, you have industry. And I think especially out west, the farming industry plays a huge role. I noticed in preparing for this segment how international media outlets were quicker to identify the conflict that is really generated when you have something like drought. 
just coincidentally, I was listening to a sermon this weekend at my church where they talked about the prophet Elijah and how there was drought, and so there was going to be famine, and so there was going to be war. And it has been on my mind since reading about what's going on out west. So I read an article from Al Jazeera about how difficult dairy farms are to think about in the midst of a drought. And that's very personal to me. Many of you know I grew up on a dairy farm. Dairy farms use an awful lot of water for a huge number of purposes. And we read about this uh, in the big thirst that we talked about during our infrastructure series quite a bit, that farming is a, a challenging discussion when you're talking about climate because we need farming. We need food. We need people working our land. We, we need jobs for people in those industries. And there are tons of jobs connected to agriculture. And also, when resources get scarce, people start looking around saying, do I agree with how you are using this water and how much you're using? I read a really fascinating article from The Guardian about Northern California and a community mostly of Hmong people who settled in these suburbs on land that people thought could not grow anything, and they have made it very vibrant. Some of what is grown there is marijuana. And the drought has been an excuse for local law enforcement to go in and bulldoze those fields. And they're saying, listen, when we have scarce water, we cannot have water going to illegal marijuana plants. The conflict to me is the point that when these resources get scarce, we are going to have to understand all of the implications of those scarce resources and how they feed into some of our worst instincts. I think the Delta smelt is a good example of this. They feed into any kind of existing bias we have about the world. We are going to ramp way, way up when things we depend on for life aren't as abundant as we wish they were. Yeah, I think the coverage in the United States has gotten a little bit better in pointing out that the narrative we had about climate change for so long is that you know, everyone's at risk. And it makes sense, right? We were trying to motivate people to understand, like, this is going to affect everybody. But the reality is it's going to affect some people way more than others. And that it's in this battle for resources and this these battles that are going to be created over resources, some people are going to suffer more than others. And, you know, they talked about in Southern California, because of the drought and the early aughts, like they built up they built up huge reservoirs. They have aqueducts and they've been storing water there for during wetter years so that they have some reserves. And now you have towns up in Northern California in the Pacific Northwest who didn't usually have to suffer through drought that are near experiencing heat waves, now don't have water. They they followed this one town where they have to have the water trucked in at the cost of anywhere from 20 to 45 cents a gallon. And like the issues that this is creating. And I think the difficulty is not just the geographic debates that these create, but like you said, the the industries that have been affecting the water reserves. If you read one thing in our show notes, read the article in The Atlantic we've linked to about well diggers and well fixers. They follow this one man who has been digging wells for farmers for generation and is basically trying to sound the alarm that the underground water table is drying up. There are areas where it's like the ground is literally sinking. He's building well, he's digging wells that used to would have lasted for 10, 15 years and they're dry in two. 
And when he tries to explain it to farmers, especially the people who have almond groves, almonds are notoriously greedy when it comes to water. I read this article and thought, I'm never buying a thing of almond milk again as long as I live. That it's just depleting these aquifers. And he keeps trying to say, like, it's not going to be here. We're not going to be able to do this forever. And no one is listening. And it's just it's so upsetting to realize that things are changing permanently, that our sort of our individual responsibility mindset that so often we have in the United States is not, just not going to work for us. And that in California, where maybe there would be relief come winter and maybe that there would be some rainfall to refill these aquifers, like it's not going to be enough. Recently, OSHA announced that the precipitation was going to be below normal through the winter and the fall, and that what they're really looking at is what some scientists call a mega drought in the region that is similar to or perhaps worse than some that have occurred over 1,200 years ago and lasted for 40 years. So the idea that, you know, winter and fall is going to come and this this is just the natural cycle of things is just no longer true. And I think that is part of what makes having any kind of reasonable conversation about climate change difficult because at this point we are not only talking about climate change and the reality of human activity and its connection to the natural world. We're also talking about disaster management. We're talking about forest fire management. We're talking about the maintenance of our infrastructure systems as we discussed so much during our series. We're talking about some science and how we're going to try things and some of those things are going to have effects that didn't work, even if they were done with the best of intentions to try to uh, combat the harmful effects of climate change. There's a good article. It's actually about coronavirus, but in the New York Times today called The U.S. is Getting a Crash Course in Scientific Uncertainty. It's by Apoorva Mandavili, and she writes about the way that science usually works when the whole world isn't watching it and how much time it takes and how vigorous the debates are over good science. And I think that around climate change, because it is so present with us now, the effects of it are so present, we are still kind of stuck in the mentality of, well, there are slight disagreements. Is it a mega drought or is it a regular drought? Well, there are a lot of different ways to measure a drought. And all of those conversations that happen among scientists are really, really important. I think the trick as a citizen and a person who doesn't have expertise in those areas or a person who cannot affect what type of energy source is used in their state or any number of decisions that are coming to a head because of climate change, you can feel really stuck because we want to do something about it instead of just worry about it. And while there are things we can do, a lot of those things feel like just the tiniest drop in a big ocean. And so finding that way of engaging with this without getting depressed or without trying to uh, outperform everybody else in your commitment to the climate and actually be effective is just, it's its overwhelming. And I, I kind of feel like we're stuck in that overwhelm space right now. Well, we always talk about this, you know, over the weekend, there were some really terrible weather events. The Northeast was hit with Tropical Storm Henry. There was flash flooding in Nashville, where over 20 people lost their lives. And every time this comes up in the news, 
you know, we have a conversation between us. Well, what else can we add? What can we say? Because so much of what we do here is, you know, we process the news. But when we talk about climate change and we talk about natural disasters, it feels like too much to process because we're not processing human leadership to a certain extent, right? When those big things come in, it's not like we can break down and talk about like our anger or frustration towards Joe Biden's leadership in Afghanistan or our anger or frustration toward mass mandates or the lack of them in the pandemic. When it comes to a natural disaster or a story that is affected by climate change, I mean, who are we going to be mad at, right? <laughs> who are we, if even if it's the human race, well, we're humans, who are we going to accuse of poor leadership? Or how long can we spend accusing people of poor leadership? Because there's plenty to go around. I think we have to learn how to do that. We have to stay in the posture we often advocate for, which is curiosity. It feels like there's nothing to be curious about when flash flooding hits, but that's not really true, right? I mean, I think there's a lot of things that we can learn about and think about and think about how they affect our community. But it is hard and it is ever-changing in a way that like pure politics isn't, right? I mean, pure politics is cyclical. It's something we understand. It's individualized in a way that I think is easier to talk about, whereas this stuff is bigger and more existential and philosophical, and it's really hard. I read an article about a native of Portland talking about why they weren't going to move back to Portland to their hometown as they were looking for a more permanent location. They talk about the protest and they talk about the heat waves. And they said, settling down means something different now because there is no long term. The best one can hope for is a temporary pocket of equilibrium to be enjoyed while it lasts and then mercilessly abandoned. And I think that's how a lot of people feel when we talk about climate change in particular. There's like been a lot of reporting about we're not going to be able to depend on things and everything we understood about how to live a good life and what it means to raise kids is changing. I think it's always been that way. We in the United States, in particular, the 20th century, in a particular subset of the population in the 20th century, had the blip of stability. But most of human existence rested on a ground of equilibrium, right? There was not huge time periods of human existence where the global population just felt really settled and safe. Like, that's just never been the reality. Human survival is a constant balancing act. And it's a constant taking in of new threats and new concerns and new populations and the diversity of the human species and how that affects your people. I mean, it's just to me, the sooner we can abandon this idea that like we've lost this permanent way that human beings were surviving and now everything is different, the sooner we can find new and better ways to deal with it and think about it and talk about it because it just that was never true. The human species has always been battling for its survival against different things. And this is just our thing. Again, survival and, you know, even like just the big topic of a human species is a lot harder to talk about than the latest election or the latest politician or whoever you're mad at currently in the news. I think curiosity being centered here is really helpful. And the other thing I think a lot about is the tension, because I think those of us who care a lot about climate change see the need for global action, 
And we kind of hold the need for global action and individual action together without thinking about Mm -hmm. all the layers in between. So I am going to recycle. I am not going to use XYZ product. I am not going to give money to X, Y, and Z corporation. And then I also want us to be in the Paris Climate Accords and, and those things. And there's so much in between that also needs our attention. And that in between is where I think there's an opportunity to really embrace people who, for whatever reason, are just culturally not going to be excited about that individual layer and the international layer. But when you talk to people about floodwater management, mm-hmm. You can have a conversation with someone, whether that person watches your news sources and would characterize these issues the same way as you or not. There are so many skills and talents and interests and that common need to deal with extreme weather events in our communities where everybody can be engaged and play a really positive role here. And I worry sometimes that we are so caught up in the individual level fight and the global fight that we lose all the opportunity that exists in between those two spaces. Well, because used to... You know, I felt growing up when we were in college and when I was in my 20s, in order to get to that individual level, it's like you had to get the person to agree on the global narrative that we had to do something preventative. Like, you have to trust me, the science is telling us where we're headed and we need to do something. Well, that ain't where we're at anymore. I don't need you to get up to agree with me on some perhaps going to happen climate disaster the evidence is all around us, right? And so for better or for worse, we've, you know, passed the place where I felt stuck a lot in my early adulthood is like I had to get them to to see and agree with the science. And now you just have to get people to see and agree on the reality. And I think that that is often where the human species is, right? I think that if you look back broadly over human history, it's where everybody could see the reality, And that's where we were able to sort of marshal the forces and get over whatever was dividing us in our local communities or bigger sort of geographic communities to to fight the threat before us. So we're just always grateful that you're here as we work out these things, as we figure out how to process this, as we figure out how to talk about together and with all of you these bigger challenges facing all of us, be it natural disasters, be it drought, as we work through those things individually, globally, and um, within our communities. And as we talk, hopefully, more about what we're all going to do in our individual communities, we're excited to talk on Friday about tools of activism and what that looks like when they work, when they're no longer working, how we move on to different strategies. And so join us for that conversation on Friday. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. 
Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Beth, what is on your mind outside politics? I'm realizing that one barometer of what is going on in my interior life is how much time I spend with my planner. And I wanted to talk mm-hmm. to you about this because I'm looking for all of the tips. Now, I don't care about having a pretty planner, okay? There is no washi tape in my planner. I do not put stickers on particular dates. I have finally, here in the year of our Lord 2021, learned just recently to write in my planner with a pencil because mm-hmm. things are going to change we got to move on with those changes, just erase and go to the next thing. But in terms of just really looking at my time and thinking about where I'm spending time and remembering to factor in things like the fact that I still must feed my family, when I, I know that I'm doing pretty well when I'm devoting time and energy to sitting down with my planner. And so if you have any hot tips about the way that you organize your time that way, I am all ears. Listen, the planners are a hot topic right now. I've had a couple people ask me this question recently. I spent so much of my life trying to perfect my planning process. 
I'm also like an overperformer. So when someone offers me a new way, a new app, I'm like, and they're like, this is going to solve all your productivity problems. I'm like, of course it is. I will do all of it. When I look back over the last 10, 15 years at the amount of time I've spent like setting up new planners and particularly trying to like get a new to-do app set up and learn a new process. It's shocking. It's truly shocking. All this to say, listen, I've done the research. Okay. And here's where I've settled and have been for at least five years. I do not do a paper calendar. For better or for worse, it just works best for me to do a digital calendar because I need those repeating calendar appointments Specifically, I need them for the weeks that, for better or for worse, I am too busy to sit down and, like, write out my week, right? Like, that's just inevitable. That's what I've had to learn. Inevitably, no matter how well you start, there will be a messy middle where you're like, I'm not, I can't, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, and I can't. And it's like when I would buy these expensive planners and there'd be, like, a month or weeks that were just empty, it just it wasn't good for my self-esteem. So I do a digital calendar and I have been a bullet journaler for, gosh, I think five or six years. Because I definitely did it when I was running for office in 2016. And the reason I like it is because the bullet journal flows with how engaged you are with your planner. There might be two weeks that I don't write anything in my bullet journal. And then there might be two weeks where I'm like mapping out my week and writing the cute thing. I also want to encourage you to read. Assess washi tape. It's actually the lazy person's way to decorate and make your journal look cute because you don't have to be able to draw. You just stick a piece of tape. But whatever. That's neither neither here nor there. I like it because it's flexible. And that's just what I've learned is like there's not a process or a product that's going to keep you 100 consistently engaged with your planner because that's not how life works, right? Like so it's the same thing with routines. It's what you're saying about school. Like we need a routine and I have to hold it loosely. I think that's mm-hmm. the piece I have made le- finally made with my planner. I need one and I need it to be flexible and I need to hold it all loosely. And so that's why I'm like, I'm full in on the bullet journal. I like that I can like put meetings in there and I don't need a separate thing. I can make notes about my house. I can just do quick quick jots here, quick jots there, and it's just all in one place. And also at the end, especially if you're like super flexible with what you put in it, it's like kind of a fun little memory book at the end between like all my notes or I'll stick stickers from our travels in there. And that is where I have finally settled. Digital calendar, bullet journal. Well, I feel really affirmed right now because that's about where I am. I think I use my planner very much like a bullet journal. I -hmm. put everything on a digital calendar. I never use my planner to schedule something. Right. Everything lives in the digital calendar. But I am living my best life when on Friday afternoon, I Mm -hmm. look at the coming week and I put all of that in my paper planner. Yep. Because then I think about things I don't think about when it's on the digital calendar, like, ooh, do I have to drive to a place and how long does it take to get there? Mm -hmm. And do I have to drive Mm -hmm. back from that place? So when I go through that process of taking it from digital to paper, it just opens my brain up in a different way and helps me get a better handle on the week. For a long time, my practice has been to write down three things that I have to do in a day. Just before I go to bed, these three things have to be done and they are expansive. So it's not just three work things. It is both work and life things. If I must fill out the field trip permission form today before I go to bed, then it's one of my three things, regardless of how much work I have to do. Right now in my life, making the nightly nuance for our members is one of my three things every single day. It's a significant chunk of my day. It must be done. And so it goes on my three things list. 
And I do take a lot of notes for meetings just right there in the planner. I always buy one with just tons of white space. I don't want it to be the boss of me. I don't want it to tell me what questions I have to answer or what blocks Mm -hmm, I have mm -hmm. to use for things. So I think that that kind of, yeah, I like that comparing it to my school routine, some structure and some flexibility, and we just hold them together. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I do love it when I have time to sit down. Now, I purposely moved to what my friend calls a seven-minute town because I am incapable of calculating driving time. It's just I don't have that section of my brain because I drew, grew up in a place where I didn't need that section of my brain. So it never got developed. And so the appropriate solution for adulthood was to move back to said place. So I don't ever factor in transportation time. But I will say of all my years of the other thing I was just thinking about, of all my years of studying productivity things, and again, I did them all. You know, there was a year where the is it the getting things done method? I think that's what it's called. And it was like super, super popular. And the other super helpful thing I've adopted from that technique, it's probably the only thing I kept, is his big thing is like, if it takes two minutes or less, just do it. Don't write it down. Don't check it off. Just do it. And that has been really helpful to me. Like just just if it's a quick phone call, get it done, clear it. If it's something that takes two minutes or less and two minutes is not very long, I try to just do it because there is a sense of like sometimes I like quick and easy things on my to-do list, but often it's better if I can just stick to the bigger things that when I have a, a space of time open up and be like, okay, what's been bugging me? What do I need to knock off the list? And I, again, the bullet journal. And I don't do like all the super bullet journal things. Like I don't, my index is is weak, just is. Because I don't spend a lot of time going, flipping back through my bullet journal. I'll do occasionally, but not a lot. Um, I just like it's just that central location where I can do all the things I need to do. I also got the tip several years ago that if I move something from my to-do list three times, tomorrow, tomorrow, yep. tomorrow, then it's gone. Just do it. Just get rid of or it. Or just get rid of it or just don't do it. Because yep. if I've moved it three times, how important is it to me? Exactly. It's probably not. That's how I used to, that's how I used to feel about my um, – what's the thing you used to record stuff on your TV? Not the VCR, but after the VCR. <laughs> TiVo? Before we TiVo. Remember TiVo? It still exists, right? I think some people still have TiVo. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, because streaming came along, but I just, that was used to be my role for TiVo. Like, if I if it's sitting on my TiVo for weeks, how badly do I really want to watch it to begin with, right? Like, if you don't, like, scoop it up the second it comes out like Ted Lasso, what are you even doing? Well, that all helps me. And I do feel very healthy right now because I'm spending that time writing out my time. And it helps me remember when I'm not doing it, and that goes on for several weeks. I need to check in a little bit. Maybe Beth is mm-hmm. not okay. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. if I am if I am not sitting down with my planner, maybe things have gone off track somewhere. Well, productivity is my favorite topic. I'm so glad you brought that up for Outside Politics. We'd love to hear your productivity tips, maybe on Instagram or, or email us and tell us what really works for you. I could talk about this stuff all day, every day. But thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We will be back in your ears on Friday. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Megan Hart is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Linda Daniel. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. The Creeps! Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. David McWilliams. Jared Minson. 
Emily Neasley, Danny Osmond, Tawny Peterson, Tracy Putoff, Sarah Ralph, Jeremy Sequoia, Karen True, Amy Whited, Melinda Johnston, Joshua Allen, Morgan McHugh, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can also connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Sign up for our weekly newsletter and follow us on Instagram at pantsuitpolitics.